Okay, operate. Have a go, go. Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning for your endless giving of life to us. Uh, you are the God who has life in yourself. Uh, you are the one from whom all blessings flow. And so we praise you for the blessing uh, of a new day, the blessings of a Lord's Day to gather as your people, the blessings uh, of being part of a church family, the blessings of having a God who has spoken uh, to us. Uh, and so we ask that you would share that life with us again through your word. Uh, uh, clarify, enlighten our minds, warm our hearts, give us willing and obedient bodies, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, welcome again to Sunday School. Welcome as ever, uh, particularly if it's your first time. <coughs> I'm a bit croaky, I'm afraid, so um, apologies uh, for that in advance. Um, we're doing a, a series of four weeks um, on the church, particularly heading towards uh, membership. So last week we thought a little bit about membership. This week I want to uh, I want to spend some time thinking about uh, well what what a Presbyterian church is. So we're a Presbyterian church. I want to think a little bit of, about what that means, or to put it another way, uh, I want to think about what the New Testament has to say about how churches are meant to be structured um, and and if you like governed. Um, this series over these four weeks is a bit. I, said, I think I said it last time. It's a bit. Imagine it's kind of a bit like a house view. You're walking around a house. Trying to sort of, oh, look, that's what the lounge, there's a kitchen, there's a bathroom. It's, it's like that with the church, trying to walk around and get a feel um, for the church. Um, I've got on the sheet where we're going um, over the next couple of weeks uh, as well. Uh, last time we saw that when God saves people, he doesn't just save them as individuals. Okay, lots of little kind of um, dots all over the earth. He binds them into a family. And in the Bible, the, the church is both an organism... Um, there's an you know, organic picture, the church grows, it's like a vine, um, it's a family, but it's also an institution. Okay, sometimes it's become trendy in the late 20th century, early 21st century, to say that church is kind of fluid. Okay, we're into liquid church. Um, and, and to shy away um, from any idea that church is also sort of organised, has a, um, when I say an institution, I mean it's got a sort of structure to it. A structure not invented by human beings. Um, but actually by, by God. Um, this all comes from the fact that ultimately there's only one head of the church, isn't there? Um, Christ. He is the head of the body. Uh, or in Hebrews 3, he's the master, the lord of the household. Uh, and the church is a kingdom. In fact, the kingdom of God and the church, are, are, I mean, they're not quite synonyms, but they're very closely related terms in the New Testament. And a king rules over a kingdom. He tells you how a kingdom is meant to work. Uh, so back in the day when, I don't know, Henry VIII was on the throne or whatever, um, you know, he's just the boss. Okay? And, and no, no one could go to him and say, well, I don't like what you're doing, Henry, why don't you do it this way instead? But he's, he's the king. He gets to say how the country is going to be run. Um, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the king of his people. And so it's up to him how he then looks after them, cares for them, structures his church. So we don't want to fall into, that, into this sort of trap. Either of thinking the church is just a sort of institution, not a family and an organism, um, or more likely in our culture because of the way that, just the way we're brought up in England at the moment and the kind of, sort of cultural narratives we, we drink in, uh, we, all, we mustn't fall off the other side of the horse, as it were, and think that it's not an institution. Okay? It is both an organism and an institution. So I want to ask four questions this morning. We'll do some discussion as ever. Um, but let's begin with the first. What is the church? Uh, the New Testament word for the church is, is ecclesia. Okay? 
Um, it's where we get things like ecclesiastical from, or ecclesiological. And that word is, is not a specially um, religious word. So at one point, there's a, there's a riot in the book of Acts. This, this mob come together, this crowd come together, and that is described as an ecclesia as well. Okay, so it's, it's not a special holy word or anything. It just means a gathering, really. And it's used in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes um, it's used in what we call, or what theologians have tended to call, the universal church. Um, the universal church means all Christians throughout all time and history, those who were Christians a thousand years ago, those who are Christians now, those who will be Christians in the future. Okay, it is the true church made up of those who are genuinely going to heaven, to put it like that. Um, so this is a sense of church when Jesus says things like, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. Clearly Jesus there isn't speaking about one congregation, is he? Okay, he's not saying I will build Christ Church Derby, okay, or St. Peter's Luton, or Hillsong, and the gates of Hades won't overcome it. He's talking about the whole body of Christ. And notice Jesus doesn't say, I will build lots of churches, and the gates of Hades won't overcome them. He's more specific, I will build my church. Okay, he's focusing on that picture of the church as one great body, one great family, one great temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one head, so one body. At other times in the New Testament, the, the word church, that ecclesia word, is used not for the whole body viewed as a unity, but as a specific congregation. Uh, that's why Paul could talk about churches, plural. All the churches of Christ greet you. Okay? Now, he doesn't mean there's loads of bodies of Christ. Christ one one head, one body. He's talking about what we would call congregations. Uh, that's why, um, think about our own congregation, we are Christ Church Central. We, don't, we can call ourselves a church. Okay, we don't have to say we're a part of the church. We can call ourselves a church. Okay, Emmanuel Baptist Church, Mosaic Church, Redeemer Church. Um, the word can either mean the, the local congregation or the whole body viewed together. Um, but I think there's a third sense in which the, the, the term is used in the New Testament as well. And that is of a kind of regional grouping of congregations. I think on your sheet I put Acts 8.1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, that, in Acts 8, what, what do we know about the church, about the state of Christianity in Jerusalem by then? Uh, we know that on the first day, on Pentecost, 3,000 men were converted. And then in Acts 4, another 5,000 men are converted. And that's just men. Okay, so even if no women and children were converted, that's already 8,000 people. Now, there's no kind of mega church buildings in those days. So obviously, they're already meeting in different congregations. I mean, likely numbers by that stage are sort of 20,000, 30,000 people, given there'll be women and children as well. There's no way the early church was just men for the first few weeks. And yet, Paul can use the word church to refer to what must have been loads of different house churches scattered across the city. Uh, you get the same... Uh, Acts 9, chapter later, the church, singular, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. Now, there are Christians who don't live in Judea, Galilee and Samaria at that time, often Ethiopia or whatever, and yet they're still referred to as the church. So it seems that, that Luke, or the Holy Spirit, ultimately, in writing Acts, is happy to use the word church, not just for the whole body of, every, of everybody, 
or just the local congregation, but also for kind of groupings, if you like, of churches. That's why, by the way, um, the Church of England is called the Church of England, not the Churches of England. Okay? In, in their understanding, now we're not a Church of England church, but in their understanding, going off these kind of, this kind of logic, that they're, they're happy to call themselves one church. They're not saying we're the whole universal church, as if nobody else is a Christian if you're not in the Church of England. But they're also not calling themselves the group of churches that happen to be in England. They're using this kind of regional language. And it's the same with us as a Presbyterian denomination. We're the International Presbyterian Church, not the International Presbyterian um, Collection of Churches or something like that. Anyway, the big point is we're all members. If you become a Christian, you are part of that one body, the one universal church. But that needs to be worked out in the context of a local church. Okay, so it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be okay, and you just don't get this in the New Testament, it absolutely would not be okay for someone to say, well, look, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, so I'm part of the, the bride of Christ, I'm part of the body, part of that universal church. I think I was over here for that one, honestly. But I'm not going to actually get, show that unity or show that, 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 that citizenship by joining a local church. No, it's always worked out in the context of a local congregation. So if that's what the church is, how are they governed? Because okay. you do get in the New Testament, you get language of, of, of people ruling over the church, which might surprise us. We're quite individualistic. We don't like it. But, but actually, there are those who've been taught to, to lead, to use the language of Hebrews 13, or to rule over the church, to use the language of 1 Timothy 5. Uh, as well, of course, as to shepherd the church, teach the church, care for the church, pray for the church. Um, come with me to, to Ephesians 4. A bit of a gallop this morning, I'm afraid. We're going to look at a few passages because there's not, there's not just one passage you can look at that, that gives you all the, um, all the answers. So page, if you've got one of the church Bibles, page 977. And Paul is talking about Christ ascending to heaven okay, and what he did. And as Christ ascended back up to heaven, he gave gifts to the church. So let's pick it up uh, at verse 8. So Ephesians 4 verse 8, therefore it says, when he, that's Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. It's a good picture, isn't it? Jesus goes up and he gives gifts down. And what are those gifts? Our first thought might might be, well, it's gifts of the Spirit. But look how he goes on. Um, Verse 9 and 10, just talk a little bit more about if he goes up, he must have come down. But pick it up in verse 11, which explains this giving. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or some versions the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Um, The gifts that Jesus gave to the church in Ephesians 4 are the gifts, you see, of church leaders or church officers. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He is the king, and so he gets to choose what roles exist in his church and how those roles are performed. Now, now some of them, we're not going to look at all of them this morning. Some of them are what um, you would call, or has historically been called, um, extraordinary offices. Um, That is, they are foundational, and they no longer continue today. So in that, in that category would go apostles and prophets. 
come to chapters earlier, Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. To be an apostle um, was to be one of the, the, uh, those who had seen the, the risen Christ and been appointed specifically by him to preach uh, and lay the foundations of the church. When, you, when an apostle spoke, okay, if he was preaching or you bumped into whatever, um, it was as if God was speaking. They were walking, talking Bibles. Same with the prophets. Prophet in the New Testament, same as the prophet in the Old Testament. If Isaiah walks into the room and starts preaching in the name of the Lord, he has the right to say, God says, and off he goes. Because God reveals stuff to him and Isaiah says it. Same as the New Testament prophet, actually. Now, no one nowadays has that authority. Okay, someone can teach you what the Bible says, um, but they're always just going off the authority of God found in the scriptures. Um, I'm not, I don't want to go down that alley too much now, but it's not our focus this morning. Happy to chat about it. Um, but I want to focus this morning on what are the ordinary offices, the ones that continue to this day. Uh, and that is um, those of, sh- uh, well, for our purpose this morning, shepherd uh, and teacher. Um, also known as elders. Uh, when Paul goes on missionary journeys in, in Acts, um, the, 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 the tendency is to think, isn't it, that he's spending all his time just going and doing evangelism everywhere, new places, go to new cities, new villages. But interestingly, um, when you read through a bit more carefully, um, although he sort of heads off first and does exactly that, plants churches all over the place, in Acts 14 he goes on a second missionary journey and he goes, he says, to appoint elders in the churches. Um, so part of Paul's mission strategy is not just to begin a church, but then to return to it to make sure it has elders over it. So this whole idea of church government and leaders and structures, whatever, it's not a hindrance in Paul's mind to mission. It's vital to mission. He doesn't say, oh, don't bother that boring stuff. Just crack on and do evangelism. Just pray and everything will be okay. He wants good governance in the church. Uh, In fact, elders have been found all the way through the the history of God's people. Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, are are cared for by elders. Uh, And as we get to uh, the book of Acts and the New Testament letters, uh, we meet this group who are sometimes called elders and sometimes called, um, well, in the ESV, the version on your, your tables, sometimes called overseers. In older versions, that would be bishops. But although they're different words, elder, bishop, stroke overseer, pastor, Ephesians 4, they all refer to the same um, office, to say the same role. Um, so let me just give you one example of this. Acts 20. And we'll do some discussion. Sorry, it's a gallop. Um, Acts 20. So it's page 929 of the Church Bibles. Uh, Acts 20. And Paul is gathering the Ephesian church leaders on the beach. Um, So look at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So all the elders are there. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you all. He begins this great sermon. But look how he refers to them, just a bit bit further down. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you elders. So that's not what it says. Uh, The flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's the the bishop word again to use all the language 
You get the same thing in the book of Titus. Titus is told to appoint elders in the churches. And Paul says, so what you want for these overseers? And, and he said, Paul, just made, I, thought you, I thought I was putting elders in place. Now you're telling me what you want the overseers to be like. And Paul would say, well, it's just a different name for the same office. So that's one of the reasons um, why in Presbyterian churches, we don't have um, elders and um, pastors or um, whatever you want to call them. And then as a higher level up office, a bishop. Okay? Because in the New Testament, they're just the same role. Uh, a bit like I'm a father and I'm a husband um, and I'm a minister and I'm a whatever. Uh, and again, in the New Testament, elders are, are always plural. Okay? You don't just have one elder over a congregation. Elders, plural, get appointed. Uh, one last verse before we do some discussion. Uh, just uh, in, from 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy 5. So these elders or bishops or overseers are appointed over congregations uh, and together they share the care of the church. They pastor or shepherd the flock. But it does seem that amongst elders there, there can be a bit of a division of labour. Okay, some are particularly um, responsible for certain things. So uh, one example is uh, 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. 1 Timothy 5 17. Let the elders who rule well, there's a ruling well, leading well, those who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Now we've read earlier in the letter that all elders have to be able to teach. That's part of their qualification. If you can't teach, you can't be an elder. Um, but not all will labour, will work, will spend most of their time preaching and teaching. So, so in, in Presbyterian churches, one of the ways that first finds its outworking is we have what are called ruling elders and teaching elders. So here at Christchurch, um, we've got three elders and we're, we're totally equal in authority, for want of a better word. Okay, so Matt and Peter and myself, there's no hierarchy. Um, I'm, I work full time for the church, but that doesn't make me kind of up here or anything. It's totally flat. But Peter and Matt are ruling elders and I'm a teaching elder because I, my job basically, I spend, I do most of the bulk of the, of the teaching and the preaching. So you, you couldn't really have, if I can't, I mean you might think I can't preach, <laughs> but uh, if I can't preach, I can't do my job. Okay? I, I, I couldn't be a teaching elder. We could appoint an elder in the church who is not an upfront preacher. Okay? Wouldn't like addressing everybody on a Sunday morning. It, it's really good, maybe one-to-one -one or in a small group or in a seminar, setting, who knows. But they have to be able to teach they might not be a preacher. Um, very practically, the, the working out of that means that, that when, we'll come to this later, when elders are examined, are you, are you sort of fit to, to serve in the church in this role? Um, the teaching elders in IPC, um, their theology is examined to a greater degree um, than ruling elders. Ruling elders are still examined very thoroughly, and the character qualifications are exactly the same. But given that basically you have to listen to me endlessly um, over the, the weeks and months and years... Um, my theology and the other ministers' theology, teaching elders' theology, is, is examined um, to a deeper degree. So there we go. Um, Christ rules the church. He's the head. He does through through these elders. Um, just so you don't have to listen to me all the time. Um, three passages. Um, I think perhaps, never mind the 125 one, 
Um, let's go. Do you guys want to do 1 Timothy 3? You guys want to do um, Titus 1? 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Timothy, Titus. Um, someone take the lead and just have a crack at those, um, those discussion questions. What are elders to be like? What are they to do? Okay, sorry to... Sorry to hurry you, but um, we're on a bit of a gallop this morning, I'm afraid. We won't normally try and cram this much in for it. Um, I hope you got a, a bit of a flavour, at least, whichever passage uh, you were looking at, um, that um, the, the, the primary focus on the characteristic of elders, characteristics, most of the weight is on character, isn't it? There are some qualifications. You've got to be able to teach or you've got to be able to defend the truth. Um, but a lot of the weight is on, it is on character. Um, in terms of what are they to, what are they to do, I mean, there's more than just those two passages. So, you know, um, I realise that. I, the, the elders here, we, we read a book together which summarised the, the work of an elder, I thought, really helpfully. Um, um, the sort of big line was, you're, you're pastors, you're to shepherd the flock. And, it, and he, he broke it down in four ways. You've got to know the sheep. Uh, you've got to feed the sheep. God's word. Um, you've got to protect the sheep. Okay, from the, from the threats from outside. Um, be it false theology, divisions in the church, whatever it may be. And you've got to lead. Okay, clearly there is a leadership role too. Uh, and you have to do that both on a, a kind of macro level. Okay, so we... Um, we teach from the front, we preach, and it's kind of like, oh, there's how many people in the room? And you, okay. But also on a micro level, kind of one-to-one. Um, uh, yeah, on, 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 on might go in each of those categories. Okay, it's both about the kind of big picture stuff, but also getting to know people. And that's what, one of the reasons why, as we move to membership, and we, you know, as elders, this is a, something we, we're sort of aware we need to work on and grow on, and none of us are brilliant at it at all. But um, one of the things we want to do is all those who become members of the church... Um, we will make sure that a particular elder is sort of um, praying for you regularly, coming to visit you every now and again. How are you doing? How's things? Get to know you, that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's meant to be a kind of personal thing, not just, a, um, I don't know, like a, a board meeting of a business or something. So, elders. <coughs> there is a second office that continues, a second role, which is that of deacon. Uh, if you're in the 1 Timothy 3 passage... Um, you'll see the qualifications for deacons follow those for elders. Uh, I'm not going to talk a lot about that this morning. Um, um, Say so a couple of things briefly. That if the elder office is, is spiritual care of the church, the diaconal office, the deacon office, deacon just means servant, by the way, it's just the Greek word for servant, um, seems to be the kind of, um, if you like, the, the practical care office. So the qualifications are very similar in character. It's just the deacons don't teach and they don't lead. Those, those two things aren't part of the deacon's work. Uh, one, um, one person saw them as... Well, oh, sorry, let me back up. Um, it seems the origin of their office is in Acts 6. You might remember that story in Acts 6 where the, the widows, uh, different widows, there's Greek widows in the church and Jewish widows, and they start complaining we're not being treated the same. You know, one group's getting more and the other one less. And, uh, and, and the apostles say, OK, our bad. We've been doing, you know, we've been doing everything we need to appoint some people particularly to look after the distribution of food um, so that we can give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. And although the deacon word isn't used there, most people think that's the origin of that particular office. Um, so it's a care, particularly for those in need within the church, that also frees up 
um, the elders to do the teaching and preaching. But really, that's all I want to say this morning on on deacons. Uh, That just leads us uh, to to one last question before we wrap up. And that is, how how should churches relate to each other? Okay, so Christ is the head of the whole body. Um, There are all these also churches all over the place, um, which are looked after by elders. But how are they meant in the New Testament's um, pattern to, to relate to each other? Really, there have only ever been three ways that question has been answered. Okay, and you, you can see all these three ways um, in Leeds today. Uh, one is to say that each church is meant to be independent, totally independent uh, of all others. Okay? So they are, um, so no one outside your congregation has any authority over your congregation. Um, typically, the, the members of the church should vote on everything, vote who are going to be the leaders. It's all kind of internally done. Um, and although obviously you're friendly with other churches, because you're not, an, you know, as long as you're not an idiot, you, you want to be friendly with other churches. Um, th- there's no formal links. You might decide we're going to be in a bit of a club, and we'll meet up for encouragement. But there's no formal links. That's independency. So somewhere like um, uh, what would be independent churches in, in Leeds, um, Redeemer, okay, or Emmanuel Baptist, or City Evangelical. That, that's their model. Uh, then there's what's what's called episcopacy. That's the idea of um, that, that, um, that the different churches are all part of one big church. So the Church of England is a, an Episcopal church. Um, if you're in St. Peter's in, um, I don't know, Ripon, or St. George's in Bournemouth, or, or St. Fred's um, in Cardiff, although you're in different congregations, you're all part of the same church. Okay? You might be at St. Helen's Bishop's Gate, or you might be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, it's the same church, ultimately. That's why it's the Church of England. And what links them together, um, in terms of the kind of leadership structure at least, is they have bishops over them. Okay, so you have one vicar over the church, but then a bishop um, will be above you know, all the churches in Yorkshire or Derbyshire or whatever it may be. And the bishop is a higher office than, um, I mean, they actually don't call them elders, they call them vicars, but same thing. So that's, kind of, that's how Catholicism works. Um, a lot of the Eastern Orthodoxy churches are like that. Um, the Church of England is like that. It's a bit of a sort of pyramid. You have the guy at the top, the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Patriarch, whatever it might be. Um, you have bishops over kind of areas, and then you have vicars over churches. We're all part of the same organisation, same church, um, but the links sort of go like that. Um, now, Presbyterians are different from both of those. Okay? We're different from independents because we think actually that, that churches ought to be formally linked together in ways I'm just about to explain. We're different from, from Anglicans and Episcopalians because we think actually there's only elders. Elders are bishops. You can't have this sort of... You can't start inventing all, all sorts of other offices. Bishops and archbishops and um, deans and goodness knows what else. Um, why? Okay, is this just the sort of thing where you sit down and you all have a... You know, you chuck in your opinion. Well, no. We've talked already about why we don't have bishops. But one last passage for us this morning, which is pretty central really, is Acts 15. Acts 15, and what's known as the Council of Jerusalem. So as we, as we come to Acts 15, there are all sorts of churches planted all over the place, okay, all over the kind of Mediterranean basin by now. Uh, and there's a problem, first one, there's a problem down in Antioch. Okay, so the action takes place in Antioch. Um, some men come from Judea, i.e. not Antioch, and were teaching in the, the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the customs of Moses, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay, so a fight breaks out in a local church down in Antioch, which is nowhere near Jerusalem. And the whole question is, do you, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Now, Paul is there. The apostle Paul is there. What would you expect to happen? What would you expect to happen is Paul says, look, I'm an apostle. Okay, I've written letters about this, whole letters about this. I can tell you the answer. No, you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. That's what he's job done. And he could have done that. But instead what happens is um, he and Barnabas and some of the others are chosen and they go to Jerusalem and this whole council is called. Now straight away that makes you think that independency would struggle a little bit with this passage. Because on an independent model you should just sort it out of the local church. Gather everyone together, have a meeting, either vote on it or however you want to do it, but it should be sorted out locally. No one else should be able to speak into what's going on. Uh, but instead, off they go to Jerusalem. Uh, verse 4. Uh, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders. And they explained what had happened. And verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider uh, this matter. Uh, various people speak, get people standing up and sort of making the case for why you don't have to be um, uh, circumcised. Uh, To jump to the conclusion, verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men and send them out with this letter. And the letter begins, verse 23, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, the Christians who are in all over the place. So what they do is they decide, no, no, of course you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. But the way they get to that decision is not just by the apostles saying, this is right, but actually by the elders sitting down and talking about it, coming to the, a conclusion. And then they don't just, that conclusion isn't just binding on one local church, but actually it's sent out over all the churches. So it's a gathering of elders from different churches who come to a conclusion, but is then binding on different congregations. Uh, what we see, in other words, is the church, through its elders, coming together to resolve an issue. Uh, and that decision is binding uh, across the congregations, not just in the one in which it arose. Uh, and I think if you, were, uh, if you were a sort of a Jewish, a faithful Jew who'd grown up, um, you know, lived through the days of Jesus, and this would be totally unsurprising to you. Because the way God's people had always been led was by elders okay, over the different tribes and the different you know, congregations, if you like, around the city, uh, around the country, rather. But they always had a council of elders. Now, the council of elders in the Gospels um, is called the, the presbytery, okay, the presbyterion, um, just a Greek word. Um, and that is the, the body that condemned Jesus to death. Okay, it's in, in Aramaic, it's called the Sanhedrin. So the, the idea of a presbytery, um, a council of elders, is, is not new. And that, that word presbytery comes up again. It comes up in, in 1 Timothy 4. Um, the council of elders lay their hand, lay, laid their hands on you, Timothy, when you began ministry. Um, it is not a new thing. Okay? It's just always the way God's people have been governed. So this is an innovation. And that means, just to be close, um, I put on your sheet there a little picture. I photocopied it from a book, so sorry for the grainy image. But this is how Presbyterian churches work, Presbyterian government works, rather. Um, each church has... An E is an elder. Each church has elders over it. Okay, they're often known as the session, just for historic reasons. It just means when you're sitting down to, to talk about things. 
which the council, the, the elders, anyway. Um, and to become an elder in Christchurch or any one individual church, the, the, the local church members would have to vote that they wanted you. Okay? You can't have an elder imposed on you by anyone else. Okay? So if you, if you didn't, from now onwards, we have membership. You, you know, if we propose Joe Bloggs to be an elder and you're all like, no way, then there we go. But elders are accountable not just to the church body, to the, to the members, but also all the elders are part, all the churches actually, are part of presbytery. Um, so for us, actually, four times a year, um, Matt and Peter and I um, will go to presbytery, which is a gathering of all the other elders in, um, uh, in, in England. And actually in IPC, there's another presbytery that looks after um, Korean-speaking churches, another presbytery that looks after churches in Europe. And so once a year, we meet all together um, for, we actually call it synod rather than general assembly, but it's the same thing in the top box there. Uh, therefore, elders are accountable to the global congregation, but also to presbytery, to the other elders. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Remember, that elders had to be able to teach and defend the truth. Um, who are the people best placed to work out if someone's doctrine is good enough um, to be able to preach and teach? Well, surely it's those who um, themselves have got a good grasp of doctrine. Now, we've got lots of people in the room here who are church, you know, church members here at Christchurch, and you're very sharp, and you'd, to- you'd totally spot if I started preaching heresy. Uh, but, but just imagine, so we've got a church that just started two months ago in Chester. Another one that started two months ago in, in, in Hammersmith. Guys about to plant in Hounslow amongst people from Southeast Asian background, come from um, Sikhism, Hinduism, Islam. Um, just imagine the church, which is a very likely scenario, is just the minister, because new, and two guys who are converted Sikhs. If the minister was to say, look, um, I, you need to believe in Jesus, okay, Jesus who is the son of God, um, he was a man, so he had a body of a man, but inside the body was God, okay? So that's how he's sort of man and God. Um, on the inside he was God, on the outside he was man. It is very likely that the church members would be like, okay. Actually, that's a total heresy. <laughs> but a lot of people, totally understandably, in the congregation wouldn't be able to pick that up. Which is why you need elders who thought about these things a little bit and been trained to think this way, to be able to keep each other uh, accountable. It's also a way of protecting you guys. So let's say I start being abusive in the congregation. Okay? Never mind the heresy, just abusive in the congregation. And you come and you, you complain. And, you know, John, you're not fit to be an elder. And I say, get lost. And I'm not having this nonsense. What do you do? Well, you go to the local elders. You go to Peter and Matt. Okay? And they ought to sort me out. And they can. Okay? They've got the power to do that. But let's say that Peter and Matt have been so entranced by my brilliance that they wouldn't wouldn't ever believe that anything i could do anything wrong okay they're not but let's just say it happened and so they say well no go away but you're convinced that i am i am bad bad news what can you do well in an independent church you're stuffed you can't do anything you have to leave or something but actually you guys would have the right to appeal to presbytery okay to, to go to those other elders and say look there's a real problem here and they would come in um to investigate basically so there's a second point of accountability there's a real problem at the moment in England with, with, with bullying church leadership it's something some of you know quite a lot, quite a lot about um, I think it's really important that you guys all know basically how to sack me um, if, if I go rogue theologically or, or in, in, in character um, and of course the same for, for, for Peter and Matt that's how we would get Peter and Matt if they went rogue so there we go um, that has been a total gallop um, and a lot of material I'm, because we need to 
turn church around and the musicians need to have a chance to practice. I'm not going to do questions. Um, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to turn the room around. But if you'd like to chat, just come and grab me and I'm, I'm happy to say things further. Next week, we'll go at a bit of a gentler pace. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that your glory is revealed within the church. Uh, you told us that when people see our unity, uh, they would know the truth of the gospel. And so we pray so much that we, we would be a united church. We pray that nothing we do as a church, nothing that any elders who serve in your congregation do, uh, would ever bring dishonour to you, but rather glory. Uh, and we praise you so much that it is you who are active, you who leads still, you who has all authority in heaven and earth, you who builds your church, you who pastors and shepherds your people ultimately. And so to your own care, we entrust ourselves in your own name. Amen.